1899, two famous Americans both died. They were both quite well known in the culture of that day as orators. One, Robert Ingersoll, whose close friend Walt Whitman said of him that he was the greatest orator of that time. Ingersoll was an agnostic. Many of his talks advocated humanism, and he often poked fun at religion. He was known by many as the great agnostic. And sadly, in 1899, he died suddenly, shocking his family. His family mourned and despaired at his death. And at his memorial service, there was a note. The note in the program said this, there will be no singing. So there would be no singing at his memorial service, at his funeral. What a sad, dark ending. No songs, no melodies at the end. The other great orator who died in 1899 was the evangelist D.L. Moody, who preached the good news of Jesus Christ to tens of thousands of people. And not long before his death, Moody had written this, Someday you will read in the papers, D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher. That is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal. A body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint. A body fashioned like unto his glorious body. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. Now, at Moody's funeral, there were certainly sadness experienced by his family and friends that loved him so much. But at his funeral, there was also singing, much singing, hope-filled singing. And we see in these two famous men two very different outlooks, very different responses to death and what is beyond death. One filled with hope and one with despair. One with a song and one with no melody to be sung. And these two outlooks were shaped significantly by how each of them responded to Jesus Christ. One rejected him, scoffing at the very notion. The other embraced and trusted in him by faith. And friends, what each of us do in response to Jesus has massive ramifications for our life this week, for the future, and certainly for eternity as well. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. What do we do with Jesus? So if you have a Bible, you're turning me to the New Testament to 1 Corinthians 15. In the Bibles near you, you can find 1 Corinthians 15 on page 961 page 961. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you. You can see exactly where I'm drawing these words from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 15. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll begin in verse 1. We'll work our way through the text in that way. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table with a stack of Bibles there. There's a sign that says free Bibles. We'd love for you to just grab one of those, take it with you this morning. 
And so today we pick up the letter to the Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This morning in our passage, we're going to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is of first, of greatest importance for each of us and for the world. We see in verse 3 that Paul says there is something that he had taught them, that he says it is of first importance. That is the news that has changed lives for centuries and can change our lives today. And what is it that is of first importance? It is what Paul calls the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what do we mean by gospel? The, the gospel literally means the good news. So that's what I mean when we say the word gospel, the good news and here it is, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So it is the news, the announcement of what Jesus Christ has done. And friends, if you're new to Christianity, that is the very center of Christianity. All of Christianity hinges on this, the news, the announcement of what Jesus Christ has done. So the question is, what does this gospel, what does this good news involve? And today we're going to see first that the gospel is about Jesus Christ's death. Second, the gospel is about Jesus Christ's resurrection. Third, the gospel is responded to individually or personally. And then last, the gospel shapes and empowers daily living. So first, the gospel is about Jesus Christ's death. Paul lays this out down in verse 3 and 4. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried. So Christ died for our sins is a summary statement here of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. In this death, we're told Jesus Christ died for sinners. Notice that Paul says that this death was according to the Scriptures. Or in other words, Christ died just as the Scriptures had said that he would. There's a number of places we could look that predicted the death of Jesus. We'll look at just one of those this morning. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6, here's what it says, speaking of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now we'd wonder, though, when were these verses written that described what happened to Jesus? Were they written after the life of Jesus? Are they reflecting on what has already happened? No, in fact, they were written by the prophet Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 700 years before it happened. So pointing ahead, saying, this is what would happen when this promised one, the Messiah, would come. Here is what he would do. Jesus Christ would come and die for sinners in the place of, as a substitute for sinners. Friends, this was always God's great redemptive plan of sending a promised Savior, the sinless Savior who would die for as a substitute in the place of rebels like us. But it raises the question, but now who are these sinners that Christ died for? Well, the same passage in Isaiah says in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What is a sinner? As the text says, it is one who has gone his or her own way. We've gone our way instead of God's way. We've rejected God as king. We've, we've chosen to, to do what we want to do. And by nature, every single human, we've gone our own way. From birth and throughout life, we rebel against God. None of us naturally submit ourselves to God. So all of us are what the Bible called these sinners. And because of that, we're all separated from God with no means of making ourselves right with God. We could not reconcile ourselves through our own efforts, no way of atoning for our own sins. So Christ came, the only suitable sacrifice. And he willingly, purposefully, out of love, went to the cross as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. Out of God's great, infinite love for rebels like us, from that love, friends, Christ died for sinners. And Christ not only died, but he was buried. Very importantly, Jesus did not just appear to die, but there was an actual dead body that they took and they placed in a real tomb. And they closed a stone over the tomb. A real death had occurred. The gospel is about Jesus Christ's death. But second, the gospel is also about Jesus Christ's resurrection. Look down at verse 4. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. And in being raised by the power of God, it was evidence of the divinity of Christ. Evidence that the conquering work of Christ was complete. Evidence that the Father approved of, affirmed this magnificent work. There was a real physical death and a real 
physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul makes it clear that after Christ was raised, he was seen by many. So it wasn't that Christ was raised and disappeared and no one saw him. Paul lists in verses 5 through 8 numerous eyewitnesses. It's not intended to be an exhaustive list, but it's a significant list that he gives. So he lists Cephas, who we typically call Peter. Peter, the one who had denied Jesus three times. In particular, Jesus goes to reinstate, to restore Peter. He appears to the twelve, to the apostles, and then so on in the passage. Now, why does Paul list all these names? It's basically Paul is saying to, to any skeptic of that day, if you don't believe, here are real people that you can go and ask. In essence, these were living footnotes to say, I'm naming names. If someone living wanted to go and ask about this, these were the people they could go to. But we might say, okay, but when was 1 Corinthians written? What we find is that 1 Corinthians was written in the mid-50s. So around 20 years after these events happened. So numerous, many of the eyewitnesses were still living at the time that Paul writes this. Friends, Paul is making the case that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are actual historical events. There were witnesses who saw Jesus die on a cross. And there were hundreds of people who saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. So very importantly, we want to see that Paul is not referring here to just a concept of resurrection. Not just an idea that some would say, what's most important is that there's this sense of resurrection in your heart. But no, Paul is pointing to a literal, historical, bodily resurrection. Now you might be with us this morning and you're thinking to yourself, how could we possibly believe in the bodily resurrection from the dead? It's a very fair question. And you might think to yourself, look, we, we today know that doesn't happen. With the advances of science and all that we know, we know that people don't rise from the dead. But we can see why, you know, so long ago that people back then who perhaps believed more in the supernatural, more, more easily convinced, might have been gullible on this topic. And at first glance, that actually sounds like a reasonable argument. Except that when we read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find something interesting that the, the followers of Jesus, who Jesus had actually been telling them he was going to die and be raised, he had predicted it would happen, and yet on the third day, none of them were just standing outside waiting to meet the resurrected king. Instead, they were despairing, brokenhearted. They didn't believe he was going to rise from the dead because they know people don't rise from the dead. So those very first followers they were skeptics of this. Even when the eyewitnesses, the first eyewitnesses came back to tell the rest of them they had met the resurrected Jesus, they still didn't believe it. So friends, we, we shouldn't just say or think that people back then were just easily able to believe. Friends, the very first skeptics of the resurrection were the closest followers of Jesus. In addition to the people that Paul names, there's some other evidence that we should consider about the resurrection of Jesus. First, we want to be mindful that this tomb where Jesus' body was placed was in Jerusalem, a known lo location to both Christians and non-Christians. 
And shortly after Jesus' death, this movement begins to have influence. This preaching is beginning to sort of stir things up in Jerusalem. And there were many opponents who had a desire to kind of squash this movement. Well, if the message of the movement is that Jesus has been raised from the dead, it's really pretty simple to squash the movement. All you need is to pull out Jesus' dead body and the movement is over. Now, there were plenty of people who wanted to do that. And they were in proximity, in the place, and yet no one was ever able to produce a dead body. Also, in those gospel accounts that I mentioned earlier, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's clear that the very first witnesses who did meet the resurrected Savior were women, which today we would think nothing of. But in that day, the the testimony of women was not seen as reliable, trustworthy. So think about it. If you were going to make up a story, you knew it wasn't true, but you wanted to create a story, you'd want the very first witnesses to be the most trustworthy in the culture. So if you were making it up, you wouldn't have women as the first witnesses. You would certainly have men if you wanted to be believable. So why do the Gospels have women first? Simply because that's what happened. That's who was there. And it points to the reliability of the Gospels. We also see that these disciples that followed Jesus so closely, when Jesus was arrested, that they were filled with fear. Most of them run. Some even deny him. And yet in weeks, they will stand in Jerusalem at risk of their own life, and they won't stop preaching. How did that happen? from so lacking in courage to now embracing suffering. Something changed. It would seem they saw something or someone. We also have to be mindful of the reality of the, just the dramatic expansion of the church. Jesus' disciples really were this kind of ragtag group, unimpressive, common people. And yet from that small group, Friends, even outsiders would have to know like, there's this r- remarkable expansion to the whole world, crossing continents and languages. How did that happen from such a small group? And there's additional areas of evidence that we could explore as well. And if you're curious, if you'd like to know more about those, I'll be available following the service. I'd love to point you to some other books if you want to dive in more and think about some of these questions and the evidence. Well, friends, let me be clear. As Christians, we're not saying that resurrection is normative. We we don't think it's common. That's not what Christians think. It it is shocking and miraculous to us as well. We we believe it's a a -a one-of-a-kind event that happened. But we also as Christians believe that however miraculous it is, it's actually simply the best explanation of the evidence it makes the most sense of what has happened. So it is true that Christianity involves faith. I would say, though, every worldview involves faith. Christianity involves faith, but also we would say is based upon a reasonable faith. There's evidence on which we build this reasonable faith. Now, some would say, and perhaps this is what you think, you say, look, I just follow Jesus' teachings. I'm intrigued by his life, by his example, and his teachings. So I take those, but but I, I discount his resurrection. I don't think I need his resurrection in order to follow his teachings. But friends, the problem with that is that all of Jesus, 
his life, his teaching, his death hinge on the resurrection. For if we read the words of Jesus closely, we'll see that Jesus won't allow us to only take his teachings because so often in his teachings, he's pointing ahead to his death and his resurrection. Author Tim Keller hopefully says it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And that's the question. If he didn't rise from the dead, the cross is simply a tragedy, the end of a religious leader who died. And he's not worth following. We should disregard him. We should not be here this morning. We should be at home drinking coffee and reading the newspaper. Disregard him if he wasn't raised. So friends, we must honestly wrestle with this. No one doubts there was this Jesus of Nazareth who died on a cross. I mean, even opponents, skeptics, no one really doubts. There was this historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, this historical person who died on a cross in Jerusalem. The question is, was he raised from the dead? And if you say no, I would just want to ask you, well, then what do you do with these pieces of evidence? How do you explain what happened then and since then? Friend, if you're a skeptic, if you have doubts, I want you to know that we welcome skeptics here. We're glad that you're here this morning. We're so thankful you would spend a part of your Sunday today with us. And if you're willing, interested, we would love for you to be with us as long as you want to explore. If you want to explore anonymously and just show up and attend on Sunday, we welcome you to do that. If at some point now or in the future you'd want to say, I think I'd like to talk with someone about these questions, we'd love to have that conversation, not to try to force you to think anything, but to interact with the real questions that you might have. How important is this death and resurrection to Christianity? Friends, it's absolutely central. It is the pinnacle, the heart of the Christian faith. Paul himself says later in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ has not been raised, he says, Christian preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. He says, if Christ has not been raised, we're still in our sins. If Christ has not been raised, death actually wins and we have no hope. And in fact, he says, we are to be pitied above all if Christ has not been raised. Well, friends, the good news is Christ has died and Christ has been raised and that changes everything. That leads to third, the gospel is responded to individually, or we could say personally. So how are we to respond to the gospel? We see in verse 1, the gospel which they received, which Paul received. So the gospel must be received. How does one receive it? It is received as a gift of grace by faith. It is by faith saying, yes, I trust in the death and resurrection of Christ by faith. I, I place the weight of my life, of my future on him. He is now my hope. Friends, we must understand that it is received. It is not earned. We do not work for it. 
We do not purchase it through our good life or through our devotion to any sort of faith. We do not in any way merit this. We don't deserve it. It's received as a gift. And it must be personally received. It's not enough to simply be around the gospel. It's not enough to simply attend church. It's a good and wise and godly thing to do. But you can know the gospel, even be able to restate the gospel, but if you've never received it, placed your faith in it, friend, that's still the great need of your life. So I wonder, friend, do you recognize yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior? It's a hard thing sometimes to admit, but it's the wisest thing we could land upon and come to grips with. I'm a sinner need a Savior. And friends, the good news is the Savior has come. So then the question for us is, will we turn and look to him? And friend, maybe you really consider yourself an outsider to faith. Maybe a friend invited you today or you just came on your own and in your own mind you're thinking like, I just don't feel like I fit here at all. Maybe you feel like your, your life is, you've done so much, you can't imagine God would ever welcome you in. Friend, the good news of Jesus is that no one who's alive is beyond the reach of God's grace. No matter what you've done, you've not done too much. There is grace available, salvation available for you. And what's the result of receiving this gospel? It is this salvation. We see verse 2, by which you are being saved. So the gospel has made possible this great salvation. It is through Jesus' death and resurrection that salvation is made possible. And this salvation provides for us reconciliation with God, provides full forgiveness of our sins, provides adoption into God's own family, brings us into life transformed now and life eternal. But even as we think about what the salvation does provide, we have to note how we are not saved, and we are not saved because we're somehow good enough. It's so tempting to think I deserve salvation because I'm a good person. Almost everyone in the room would think of ourselves as good by whatever sort of measurement you would use. But friends, the scriptures are clear that none of us are good. All of us have gone our own way. So we're not saved by being good. We're not saved because our family attended church. So that's a wonderful thing if your family did. You're not saved because you were baptized at some point in your life. That's not sufficient. We're saved only through trust, faith in the Savior who died and was raised. So friend, have you received this great salvation? Have you received this free gift? And if not, we would love for you to receive it today. And then fourth and last, the gospel shapes and empowers daily living. The gospel shapes and empowers daily living. Because we might wonder, okay, that may be true, but, but what's the relevance for today for the Christian? What's the relevance for next week? So how are Christians to continue to interact with this gospel? And we see in verse 1 and 2 that we are to continue to stand in it. Look what Paul says, the gospel which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So we receive it by faith. We receive this gift of grace. So we've entered into this great salvation, and what do we do? We continue to stand in that grace. 
to live within the grace of God, to trust in this grace and the glorious gospel. So friend, if you're a Christian, what are you standing in this week? Have you received the gospel by faith, experiencing grace, but are you now somehow wandering from grace and, and living as if now it depends on you? Are you exhausted in, in laboring instead of living out of this glorious, never-ending fountain of grace that Christ has provided? What does this tell us about the necessity of the gospel for everyday living? Look at verse 10. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So it was by grace that Paul was saved. It was by grace that he lived. It was by grace that he was changed and being changed. And it was by grace that he gave himself to really enduring, exhausting service of the gospel. And if you're a Christian, the same is true for you. It is by grace that you were saved. And it's by grace that you are to live today. It's by grace that you have been changed, you are being changed, you will be changed in this life. And it is by grace that you can now labor in the mission of Jesus in this world. So we are what we are by the grace of God. And we do what we do by that same grace. And friends, the reality of the resurrection has countless implications for our lives today and next week, and next year. Friends, the resurrection of Christ means that death has been defeated. Christ rising from the dead shows he's defeated death and the grave. Now, it is true in our world today, death dominates. And for honest, the vast majority of people in our world, probably most of us in this room, to some extent, fear death. In our culture, we do all that we can to try to lengthen our days more and more and more. We avoid even the topic of death. We go to funerals only if we have to. But friends, for all who've looked to Christ by faith, death has been defeated. Death is still real in this world. And unless Christ returns, you and I will face death. But for the Christian, we don't have to fear death. So the Christian can live with confidence, freedom, even in the face of suffering and death. We don't have to cling to life. We don't have to be terrified by death. So the reality of the resurrection changes the way, can change the way that you and I think about death. The resurrection also means that we who are in Christ will one day be raised with him. We'll be raised with him with a resurrection body that, that no longer is broken down. All of us to varying degrees have bodies that are, that are not what they were intended to be, that are broken and breaking down more and more as the years go by. But friends, Christ was raised and all who trust in him will be raised with him and finally then with perfected bodies. Which means, friends, one day suffering, pain, disease that breaks us down will be gone forever. So therefore, the the resurrection means that your suffering in this life is not endless, nor is it pointless. So don't lose heart. Your suffering will one day be gone. It will be destroyed. The resurrection also means that one day all things will be made right. 
injustice will not prevail. Wars will finally come to an end. And so therefore, friends, how we live is to be reshaped by the fact that Christ has been raised and reigns and empowers us today. So we now face suffering with great endurance as Christians. We can now face loss in this life, even great loss, without despairing. We can face death with hope. We can face rejection by others because we've been accepted by Christ. We can labor to bring good and change and healing in this life with the power and strength that Christ provides for us. Friends, this gospel is powerful and it is central. And yet we're all prone to slide away from it. So we need to be constantly reminded of this gospel. Friends, that's what Paul is doing in this letter. So he writes this letter to the Corinthian church. And you notice what he said is, I'm writing to to remind you of this. They knew it. He's saying you need to be reminded of it. We all need to be brought back again and again and again to the gospel because we're tempted to slide from it, to lose sight of its magnitude, to lessen it, to, tempted to move from trusting in Christ and his grace to trusting in ourselves. Where we're tempted to move from saving this great salvation and the forgiveness of sins to, to falling back under condemnation and guilt. So friend, all of us need to be reminded of this gospel. And so we're reminded through the word of God We're reminded by and with the people of God. It's one of the many reasons we need a local church. Because when I'm forgetful of the gospel, there's some other brothers and sisters who can remind me. And when they're forgetful of the gospel, I can remind them. So friend, if you're a Christian, you need a local church. Let me encourage you to find a local church that that preaches this same gospel that Paul has here. Put down roots that they would remind you and help you and you could do the same for them. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful, and it's pivotal, and it demands a response. And so my question today for you is, how will you respond today to the gospel of Jesus Christ? You might respond today by rejecting Christ, refusing to trust in his death and resurrection. I sure hope that's not what you will do, but that's certainly an option. You might respond today with some curious skepticism. So maybe for the first time, or maybe skeptical again, leading to some curious exploration. Friends, I said we would welcome that. Skeptics, questions are welcome. So so if you want to know more, you'd be welcome to whatever extent you feel comfortable that's simply attending. Or if you'd like to talk with someone, we'd be glad to arrange for a conversation just to begin exploring Or you might today be a person who's been around the gospel for years, maybe even decades. Maybe you've been attending here for a very long time, and you've never personally received this gift. Friends, our prayer today, friend, I plead with you today that today you might turn to Christ by faith. That you might receive this free gift. Say, Jesus, I, I do. I trust in you as Savior and King. I trust in your great saving work. Friend, won't you do that today? If you're a Christian, how do we respond today? 
Friend, because of the resurrection, we can respond with refreshed hearts and souls, even in the midst of an exhausting, sin-marred, suffering-filled world. All of us face those very real realities. Death still looms. And yet, we have hope today, refreshed hearts, because our Savior and King is alive. He reigns today. He's at work in the world. He's conquered death, hell, and the grave. We have the hope of his presence with us now and life eternal. We have the promise of our own future resurrection from the fact that our suffering is not pointless. And there's a mission worth giving our very lives to in the spreading of this good news so that every person might hear and have the chance to respond. As I mentioned earlier, at Robert Ingersoll's funeral, sadly, there was no singing There was no tune, no melody that day. But friends, for Christians, we are a singing people. If you travel the world, you can go to continent after continent, people group after people group, and as you worship with Christians there, the gathering will be slightly different. The structure they may be in or not be in a structure at all may be different, yet there will be this common reality you'll find every place, and that is all Christians everywhere sing. And you may not know their language at all, but you'll quickly know they're singing with with hope and resolve and joy, and there'll be something that will resonate to help you know they're singing to the same Savior, even you don't know the language, because Christians are singing people. We sing in suffering, through suffering, We sing at funerals with with hope and enduring joy. So friends, in a moment, we're going to sing together today through song to celebrate our resurrected king. So if you're you're a Christian, I encourage you today, respond in singing. And if you say, well, I don't sing very well, join the club. But join the singing as well. Join in this glad singing. We sing because of enduring hope, because of our great Savior.